So again, hello and welcome. So my name's Evan, and we are walking through the Gospel of Matthew on Sundays together. So I wanna say this, because of the content of today's teaching, and because we're seeing new faces come and go all the time, I think it bears mentioning, we are reading the whole Bible together as a family in 2018. We're using the Read Scripture app. How many of you knew this? Awesome. Uh, it's powerful knowing your whole church family is praying the same psalm along with you every morning. It really is. Uh, also, we're tracking through the Old Testament right now together, which is the only way to do it, I think, together, because it's wild territory. And anyone who's a good guide will tell you when you go into wild territory, do not go without a buddy system. <laughs> That's kind of how I feel about the Old Testament, in community, together. So, um, we're tracking through the whole Bible this year, plus our friends at The Bible Project, they've released all these little short animated videos that sum up all the books in these little videos. So you have like super high level theology in simple terms in cartoons, best of all worlds. It's pretty awesome. So if you're reading through a book of the Bible and you get lost in the weeds, you can just flip on a video and remind yourself where you're at and get the big picture and then dive back into reading. It's really awesome. Because, listen, a major goal for this year is to learn the Bible by actually reading it in community, not just hearing about it. Which brings us to today's teaching. Our text is one of those cornerstone moments where Jesus talks about his view of the Bible. The scriptures, what Jesus's day called the law and the prophets. And it's what we call our Old Testament, okay? But it expands to include the New Testament after Jesus gave his authority to his apostles. Okay, so, but before we read the text and dive in, I actually wanna give a couple prefatory comments and even a disclaimer or two. Okay, here we go. So today we're gonna crack open the lid of a very charged and controversial but massively important conversation for followers of Jesus, all about the Bible and how to faithfully read it and submit to its authority in a post-Christian culture like America. And just know that today's teaching will barely scratch the surface of this topic. So think of today as like an introduction, uh, the beginning of a conversation that Park Hill Church is gonna be having for like the next years, at least. This is a family thing. That's why I pump communities at the, at the beginning of this talk. Also, there's, there's probably gonna be some of you here who are very new to the faith and like you're skeptical when it comes to the Bible. You, you might be cool with Jesus, but the Bible, you're not so sure. And listen, I understand that. Uh, my hope is that this is a place and this is the year where we can have questions about the Bible and some trite answer is unnecessary. In the words of my mentor and Dan's mentor, Gary Bashirs, churches need an atmosphere where questions and queries about truthfulness are encouraged and questions of the Bible are taken seriously, believing that Christianity thrives under honest investigation. We believe this. Okay, so one of the last things I'll say for now, a couple of the leaders of this church will be available after the gathering to talk about any questions you might have about the Bible or anything else. We find it best to dialogue in person about this stuff. So if you email me a Bible question, you probably won't get a response, <laughs> probably. Just because I don't think I'll be able to give you the kind of answer you deserve. Uh, and also I'm just really s slow at putting my, my head to paper. Uh, so you won't get the answer you deserve. Some, someone recently emailed us the question, what is Park Hill's theology? Like not broad at all, super easy. 
Awesome, not easy, actually. <laughs> so I, I just responded, see you at baptisms. We'll talk on the beach. And that's what I said. And it was a great talk. So, okay, finally, finally, before we dive in and read the text, this is the disclaimer. Today, I will ask some questions about the Bible and around the Bible that I will intentionally not answer. So if this unsettles you, if this is, if this is an unset, then that's good. Let it unsettle you. It's okay. There's a lot of tension in the scriptures. And keep reading. When we have questions about the Bible, sometimes the best answer is seeing how it answers itself as it unfolds. And the best answer is just keep reading. That's why we're doing it all year. Can we say that together? Just keep reading. Just keep reading. Excellent answer. And, and, and just keep reading and keep opening your heart and mind to Jesus through the scriptures as we make this journey together this year, okay? So, okay, here we go. Let's read it. Matthew 5, verse 17. Jesus on the Bible. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, which was the Bible of his day, the scriptures. Do not think I've come to abolish the scriptures. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for your light. Illuminate our hearts as we receive your revealed text. Lord, keep us, God forbid, keep us from being know-it-all Bible people. Know-it-all, prideful, Keep us humble, people of the Bible. Keep us like Jesus. Keep fashioning us after your heart, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's, here's where we're gonna start today. We, I think that's the first slide, we have a problem with the Bible. Can we say that in church? Can we say that right now? Cool. <laughs> we have a problem with the Bible. I believe that we're becoming illiterate when it comes to the Bible. A lot of us here, a lot of Christians everywhere really don't read the Bible, if we're honest. I mean, let's face it, a lot of us haven't seriously read through the whole Bible cover to cover yet. Probably even lower number that, have, that read it daily. We haven't even read the Bible cover to cover, which is crazy to, to base your whole life on a book you've never really read before, or at least not all the way. Um, but that's a fact. The fact is, the Bible's the greatest selling book of all time, year after year. You could say it's the greatest selling book never read. As a generation, as a generation, we don't read it anymore. We don't read it anymore. Some, some of this has to do with the fact that we just don't read books anymore. Like we read, we love podcast lectures and we love the little church talk right now thing and, and tweets and threads and blogs and maybe you'll pick up a popular book on a hot topic of the Bible, but we don't actually read the Bible anymore, which is everything Jesus is talking about in this text. But on top of that, a lot of us don't really know how to read the Bible. Let's be honest, the Bible's not young adult fiction. It's not the Hunger Games. Um, it's dense and foreign, and it comes in leather. Who does that anymore? And it's got these little thin pages that make me feel weird. 
And like 66 different books, it's this ancient library, different genres of this library in this book, different styles, even different opinions, warring seemingly at times in this text. And, and Hebrew, it's written in Aramaic, almost practically dead language in Greek. And then 2,000, 3,000 years ago in the Middle East somewhere, when you open the Bible, you're truly stepping into an alien world. And it's no wonder why a lot of us don't know how to come to it. And then, and then, for some of us, there's an even deeper problem. Some of us don't even like the Bible. And I, I mean, I get it. There's a talking snake on page three. That's weird. <laughs> it's just weird. If I were to ask you honestly, if I were to ask you honestly, take you out to coffee, Evan, I'm not the pastor, I'm just a guy in like safe space, just be honest, like honestly, how do you feel about the whole Bible? Just honestly. And a lot of us might say, I love the Bible. Like some of us here might be like, I love it. I read it and cherish it. I live it, eat it, drink it, breathe it day in and day out. It shapes my life. And listen, I will tell you, that's fantastic. That is Jesus. That's, that's, that was his view of the Bible. That's great. But through the years as a teacher and a worship leader who travels around a little bit and sees pockets of the Christian West, I can, I can pretty accurately say that those of you who simply purely live in and love the Bible are a tiny minority. My guess is, if most of you were to just shoot straight with me, you'd be in the majority who say, uh, you know, Evan, I don't really like the Bible. I like that you like it, Evan. I like that you read it and you study it. I like that you went to seminary and I liked your little TED talk on Sunday, <laughs> but it's not really my thing, you might say. And that's, that's, that's kind of the world we live in. Older generations love the Bible. My parents had tabs. Do you know tabs? You know this? If you don't, that's fine. <laughs> but they had tabs and color-coded, highlighted thematic elements on all the pages on large King James only print for 40-year Bible hanging out on the piano. It was tattered. Love it. Listen, beautiful. That's beautiful. It's just so rare now, especially in Christians under age 30. And, and we can see why these days. People have a, have a lot of modern questions about the Bible, questions that make us even take issue with the Bible. This book's pretty bloody, after all. There are some people who can read the book of Joshua and they can say, look how God vanquishes my enemies, lays them flat before me as I inherit the land. God is so good. They can just see that and they feel that and they, they just feel that instantly. This, ah, God is so good, he fights for me. Um, but some of us, read the book of Joshua as we did this year already. And we're like, how is this not God commanded genocide and ethnic cleansing? How is it that God could command the death of women and children? How is this holy scripture? Not to mention, you see rape and murder and incest in the people of God in the story, especially like in the Old Testament. So, so people have a lot of modern questions about the Bible and then there's the whole question, not just of modern sensitivities to the Bible, but there's a the whole question of what does the Bible mean? I'll explain. So here at Park Hill, we encourage women and men alike to use their gifts to build up the church. We encourage women and men alike to be involved in, in leadership, pastoral care, and to speak and teach and lead communion and prayer and worship and all of that. We encourage that. So in light of this, last fall, we had an incredible, humble group of folks come to us with a fantastic question. This is how the family of God's supposed to work. 
fantastic question that came to us. Honestly, you, people don't get, these are good people, they don't get better than this. And, and their question was this, why would you have a woman teach? It says in 1 Timothy that a woman should not be allowed to teach. And it actually does say that. Paul, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Yeah, I admit that's a hard text. It's, it's hard to read. But the question is, what do you take that to mean? That's the question. It always is the question when you read the Bible. Does that mean do not teach on a Sunday during a sermon? Because that's typically what we take that to mean, but it doesn't say that. It says to teach, and there's no qualifier there. It just says to teach. So the question is this, have you ever learned anything or been taught anything by a woman? And it doesn't, say, it doesn't say that women are only allowed to teach other women. It says women can't teach, period. But no one takes it to mean that. So what do you take it to mean? And who is it up to to decide what that means? Another example, Paul commands multiple times in his letters to greet one another with a holy kiss. And we all say, oh, that's not what it means. It means greet one another with a holy side hug. That's what it means. And I would say, and I would say, I would say to you, why, well, why do you interpret it that way? And you'd say, well, it's culturally conditioned. The kiss doesn't mean the same thing anymore, especially not in America. That's weird. Maybe in Italy or whatever. Okay, what about what about murder? So, well, you shall not murder. That's obvious. Well, yes, of course, but most Christians would say, well, you shall not murder unless it's killing in self-defense or defending someone you love, then it's no longer murder, it's just killing. But then, but then I would say something like, well, well, Jesus said to turn the other cheek. And then you would say something like, well, Jesus said to buy a sword. And then I would say, and then I would say well, later on, Jesus said, put away the sword, because that's not how the kingdom of God is to come. And then you might say, you might say, okay, but at the end of the Bible, isn't Jesus sitting on a white horse and wearing a robe dipped in blood and carrying a sword? And then I would say, well, the blood is his own blood and the sword isn't in his hand, it's in his mouth, so it's all symbolic. And then you would say, you would say, why are you allowed to say it's symbolic? And how do you know when the Bible's being symbolic? And how do you know when the passage is culturally conditioned? And how do you know when to obey something in the Bible? To which I would say, this is the problem with the Bible. So, and it is, and it, and it is, it is the problem with the Bible. Can we just admit something together right now? As a family, this is what the church has done for 2000 years, this wrestling. Can we admit this together right now? The Bible is a hard book to understand a lot of the time. And it doesn't take a PhD. It does though take skill and humility and community and intelligence to interpret the Bible wisely. The Bible's been used for the greatest good and some of the greatest evil our world's ever seen. Mark Twain wrote an essay about the Bible suggesting the Bible's like a drugstore because in the Bible you have both the poison and the cure. And in a sense, that's, that's true. The Bible historically has been used as the poison that has started wars and sexism and slavery and genocide like of the Native American people. People were spouting off scripture to justify the purging of Native America. And it's the poison that drove a lot of that, these bad readings. Uh, but it's also the cure. The Bible's obviously the antidote. It's the cure for wars. People giving their lives in nonviolence to war-torn countries, the empowering of women and minorities. It was the motivation to end slavery. So, okay, Evan, if it's so tough, 
why do we keep reading it all? Why are we reading it all? Why don't we just move on from it? Why don't we just keep Jesus, keep the red letters, keep some encouraging words for the pastor to speak on every Sunday morning, sing some good songs and be done with this big intimidating book. I mean, again, who wraps their books in leather? Anyway, it's just weird. And why read it all year? Here's why. The reason we do not move on from the Bible, the, we, the reason we just keep reading is because we are followers of Jesus. Jesus was obsessed with the Bible, to put it mildly. His Bible, our Old Testament, it was called the Law and the Prophets in those days. It's something he constantly quoted, taught from, and likely had completely memorized as a rabbi. He would pray it, you guys, every day. Jesus' entire way of living and seeing the world was shaped by the scriptures. So, this is important, because we are followers of Jesus, it is our aim and goal to have the same relationship with the Bible Jesus had. And Jesus loved the scriptures. So look at our text again, Matthew, 7, Matthew 5, 17. Look at this. Ooh, you okay? Cool. Here it is. Jesus on the Bible, don't think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And one more verse, 18. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. This, you guys, is a huge window into how Jesus relates to the Bible and how he sees his own life in it. So number one, notice three things. Number one, to Jesus, super important. To Jesus, the Bible is a story that reaches its climax in his own life. See those phrases in Matthew 5, 17? Not abolish, to fulfill, until everything is accomplished. That's fascinating. Listen, Jesus did not read the Bible as an encyclopedia of truth. That might be how a lot of modern minds think of the Bible or approach it, but not Jesus. The Bible isn't some scientific textbook that we data mine for definitions and answers to our questions about God and life after death or whatever. Of course the Bible is pure truth, full of more truth than we know what to do with, for sure. But Jesus first and foremost read this library of ancient literature, which is what it is, as a story, a long drawn out narrative about God and human history, where it all comes from, where it's all going. And in Jesus's mind, this whole thing is the remarkable true story of how everything is building up to himself. So and number two, to Jesus, the Bible's trustworthy. It's trustworthy. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, truly I tell you, which is Jesus for, this is the real deal right now. Listen, this is gonna be it. Until heaven and earth disappear, in other words, never, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law, which was Jesus's Bible, until everything is accomplished. Every scrap of ink, you guys, Every stroke of every letter matters is the idea here. Wow. Hey, that's about as high a view of the Bible as it gets. You can't have a higher view of the Bible than that. The Bible has really come under fire in the last 100 or so years, which is like 10 minutes in Bible years. But uh, when Jesus gets hit with like Bible accusations, like when he hears people doubting what the scriptures say, he, you never see Jesus railing against the Bible. 
His beef is always with people's misreading of it. For Jesus, the problem was never the Bible. It was the way you read it or you don't believe it or you misinterpret it or the way you have this weird bias that you bring to it or whatever. For Jesus, the Bible is trustworthy. And number three, to Jesus, the Bible is authority. Look at verse 19. Jesus does not mess around here. He says, whoever sets aside one of the least of these commands will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. This is intense. Whoever treats the authority of the Bible as, oh, actually that's not as big a deal anymore, will be least in the kingdom of heaven. And that phrase, whoever sets aside, it's like the idea of break or ignore or just like relax your grip on. So if you break, Jesus is saying, if you break the commands of the Bible, like, hey, that's okay, like that's totally out of step now. This is 2018, come on, get your laws off my body or whatever. Um, or if you ignore it, like, yeah, I know it's like in there somewhere, but yeah, whatever. Or if you kind of just relax on it, like, yeah, I know it's bad, but you know, boys will be boys. Then you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. In Jesus' view, we are to fully come under the authority of the scriptures. But before you freak out, sensitivities going off, before you freak out, please know that Jesus was no closed-minded fundamentalist. Not at all. Look what comes next. You have heard that it was said, and he quotes the Bible, you shall not murder, but I say to you that anyone who's angry with the brother or sister will be subject. He interprets it. Next one. We're gonna whip through these. Verse 27, he says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, he quotes the Bible again, but I say to you, whoever looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery. Next slide, look what he's doing here. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but I tell you, don't make oaths at all. Jesus is giving you the right reading, it seems, not just what it seems to say. And then move on. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right, turn the other. Next one. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love them, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus goes on like this. What's going on? Jesus is dealing head on with all sorts of popular readings and misreadings of the Bible in his day. Stuff on marriage, divorce, sex, stuff on military violence. And we're gonna dive into all of that in the next few weeks, but here's what we need to see. To Jesus, the Bible is in constant need of back and forth, dialogue, reading, rereading, rethinking from the ground up in order, here's why, not just to debate, but in order to get back to the heart of the text, which is always pointed towards himself. So that famous bumper sticker, you may, you may have seen it, you may have heard it. Uh, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. You know that bumper sticker? That, in my opinion, would not fly with Jesus. Uh, because what is that philosophy? Which is really what that is. What is that missing? It's something we all do. I interpret it. That's normal. That, that would make the bumper sticker less punchy though, so it's not on the sticker. But it would be the truth. It would be the truth. Here's why. Anyone who can read English can open an NIV Bible and tell you what the page says. That's not really the issue. We all agree on what the words are. The issue isn't what the Bible says, but what the Bible means. 
This is what Jesus is doing all through Matthew 5. You've heard it said, but I say to you, here's the heart of it. You've heard it said, but here's what it means. This is what Jesus is doing. And it's really like freshman level hermeneutics. How many of you are in a hermeneutics class at Point Loma or something? Sorry to bring it up. It's fun though, I love that stuff. Hermeneutic, hey guys, listen, hermeneutics, just a fancy word for the art and science of reading the Bible well. One of the first thing you learn in hermeneutics is that there are three basic layers of how to read the Bible. And I'm gonna put them on the screen for fun. Three layers, revelation, which is what does the text say? What does the text say? And then interpretation, what does the text mean? And then application, how do we live this out? So fundamentalist readings of the Bible blur the lines between the top two, revelation and interpretation. So for example, let's say you get into a conversation with, with someone with a, a fundamentalist take on something. And, and this is totally hypothetical, by the way. You get in a conversation and let's just say you're at a family gathering or whatever. And, and that person, that person walks over to you and starts that conversation about whatever it is. Like maybe the age of the earth or how Armageddon's gonna go down or something. And whatever it is. And then, great conversation, healthy. But then you get to the moment where they say, well, the Bible says blank and I believe the Bible. Do you ever find yourself thinking in that moment like, well, I believe the Bible too. I just don't think that's what it means. So, but, but fundamentalism, and don't worry, we'll get to progressivism, but fundamentalism cannot, or worse, will not distinguish between revelation and interpretation, between what the text says and his or her reading of the text. And listen, this was not Jesus's problem because he clearly demonstrates that it takes honest, intelligent, humble study to read the Bible well. And this doesn't mean you need a PhD or seminary degree. You don't need to read Greek or Hebrew. Again, for Jesus, the Bible isn't something just for the pros at all, but it is something we need to wrestle with constantly and read and back and forth and debate and discuss generation after generation. Our relationship with the Bible is one of humility and intelligence and skill and an open mind and an eye to church history and all the conversations about that text that have happened with your brothers and sisters that are with Jesus now, okay? Why, why? Because as Jesus followers, we have to come at the scriptures the way Jesus does. Because ultimately, you guys, these scriptures understood and interpreted rightly through Jesus, they carry his very authority, the authority of the Trinity, for us, for the world, this is, a huge, this is as big a deal as it gets. So we're gonna start to round the corner towards communion now. We're not quite at the end. A couple of weeks ago, we went through it. It's Jesus's wilderness temptation, fascinating window. This is a fascinating window into how Jesus thought about the Bible because that's what we're after. So remember the story, Jesus is driven by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan and the devil. Yeah, the devils, the interesting Interesting thing about the story is that we've, we've met the tempter before. Those of you that have read the Bible with us this year, you started Genesis one through three. On January 1st, you met the tempter. He was in the garden depicted as a snake and he was still using the same old trick. Back then, did God really say? Same trick. This is literally the oldest trick in the book. 
And it's been, it's been so effective for Satan. It's worked so well for Satan that he actually tried it on Jesus. Uh, but where Adam fails, Jesus wins. And how does Jesus win? By only quoting the scriptures. Jesus only says, it is written. Satan tempts Jesus, did God really say? And Jesus says, it is written, it is written, it is written, three times. Now, I believe each time Jesus says this, Jesus uses the scriptures, he's revealing a different aspect about his personal commitment to the Bible. He's showing how he has committed himself to the Bible, and we gotta follow him in this. Okay, the first temptation, we won't spend a lot of time on this, but the first temptation shows that God's word is sufficient, it's enough. Uh, so Satan first comes to Jesus, Jesus hasn't eaten in 40 days, he's starving physically. And Satan says this, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And then Jesus answers, it is written, man shall not live on just bread, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the devil literally tempts Jesus with carbs. Nasty trick. So Jesus is tempted, Jesus is tempted by the bread, but Jesus gives a powerful statement that God's words, his word, is enough. The bread from the devil won't fully satisfy him. Jesus is telling the tempter, God's word's enough for me. You can eat this book and it will satisfy your longings, your physical longings. Because that's a life-changing thing. This other really weird story in Matthew 22, where the Sadducees come to Jesus, they're the progressives of Jesus' day. They like to take out the miracles and the, the idea of resurrection. They're very, they were, uh, as you would say, theologically liberal, um, not believing anything really after the first five books of the Old Testament. And uh, they come up to Jesus and ask him this really weird question. Uh, raises a lot of other questions we can't answer, but he says, if a woman who has a husband dies, and then she marries the dead husband's brother and he dies and she marries the dead husband's brother because it was customary to carry on the family line and he dies and all the brothers die from being married to her or whatever, <laughs> which is weird. <laughs> if we, so aside from the, all the questions that that raises, <laughs> they, ask, they ask whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Thinking they're, ca they're catching Jesus with some weird hypothetical. They didn't believe in the resurrection so it wasn't an honest question. So they were just trying to be clever with Jesus. And Jesus knows this. He answers them like this. Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God? The progressives are debating the nature of marriage and life and sexuality and huge meaning of life questions. And Jesus is like, do you know why you're in error to begin with? Because you don't know the scriptures you haven't gone to the scriptures as enough for you. You haven't gone to the scriptures as sufficient for you and you do not know the power of God. When Jesus says you don't know the scriptures or the power of God, you're sad. That's just a bummer. I wonder, I mean, I wonder how many times in our lives when we've been in error or our hearts are like less than full or our souls are lean and you're suffering from whatever. I wonder how often it's because like the Sadducees, we do not know the scriptures. We do not know the power of God. Listen, it may be because you don't or haven't read the Bible for a long time or because you're driven by your experience or you're really keen on your own intelligence or interpretation of the world alone or whatever. Sometimes we're like the Sadducees. We pick and choose which parts of the Bible we wanna live under 
And there are so many ways we see life distorted and eternity distorted and meaning distorted and sexuality distorted and relationships distorted because we don't know the scriptures and we haven't experienced the power of God. The Bible is enough. Jesus shows us when he's tempted by the Satan, the scriptures are enough. You and I can live off this thing. So the first temptation shows us God's word is sufficient. The second temptation shows us God's word is coherent. God's word's coherent. So then the devil took him up to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written. Whoa, Satan, he's like, two can play at that game. It is written. He will command his angels concerning you and they'll lift up your hands so that you'll not strike your foot against a stone. Satan quotes a psalm, Psalm 91 trying to beat Jesus at his own game. Now listen, Jesus knows the scriptures and Jesus knows that Psalm 91 doesn't mean that. I know you're saying that, but it doesn't mean that. It's huge, that's huge. Following Jesus and understanding how to read the Bible. Uh, he's our rabbi, he's our teacher, okay? And, and it shows us how often we sometimes quote the Bible sometimes to our own peril. So Jesus quotes back to Satan and he says, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So what Jesus does here, he uses a passage from Deuteronomy 6 to say there's a tone, and this is important, there's a tone in Deuteronomy 6 that makes the way you're reading Psalm 91 a bad reading. And Satan, you're not taking Psalm 91 in the way it's supposed to mean because you have Deuteronomy 6, which says you can't put the Lord your God to the test, and yet you're trying to quote a Bible verse to tempt the Lord. You can't use it that way. This is extremely interesting. There are times when what you read in the Bible seems to actually contradict another part of the Bible. There are times when no easy answers seem to work. We need to admit that. There are times when no easy answers seem to work, and taking the Bible seriously means embracing its tension and complexity. Notice, notice Jesus doesn't say, oh, Psalm 91 can't be trusted today. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, oh no, Psalm 91 can't be trusted because God won't really protect me today. No, that's not what he's saying because Psalm 91 is about God protecting him that day. Jesus is saying, we need to hold these two scriptures together. Yes, God protects us, but I'm not supposed to jump off a cliff. So Jesus is saying, hold them in tension. The scriptures can be held in tension because they are coherent complex, absolutely, but coherent. They're trustworthy. Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the scriptures. I came to fulfill them, all of them. Jesus has a very high view of the Bible, as high as it gets, and he believes all of its tensions can be held together coherently as they point to himself. So you saw those three, let's see the third. The third temptation shows us God's word is authoritative. See that third one. So here's the verse. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you'll bow down and worship me. And Jesus says, away from me, Satan, for it is written. So Jesus says, I'm not gonna worship you. I'm gonna worship God and serve him only. Jesus, the God-man, places himself under the authority of the text. Figure that one out. So now we have to unpack this idea of authority here because we live in an anti-authoritarian culture. This is the issue. This is the rub today. Uh, authority, we hit on this in our pillar series. That was pillar series episode one, biblical authority. The question is, where does the Bible get its authority? Like, how can a book tell us what to do? 
And here's the answer, the simplest way I can put it, simplest way. The Bible gets its authority from God. The Bible gets its authority from God. One of the last things Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It doesn't say all authority in heaven and earth has been given to the Bible. It's very important. It says all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus. It's always interesting to me and slightly, slightly frustrating, but mostly just interesting when I go to like a church's website and see their statement of faith and the number one thing they believe in is the Bible. Like number one, like first and foremost, we believe in the Bible. I'm like, no, 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 I don't, no, you don't. You believe in God, first and foremost. You believe in God and the Bible gets its authority from God, not the other way around. And we as followers of Jesus trust in the Bible because we trust in Jesus, not the other way around. This is very, very important. Okay, I highly recommend this book by my friend Andrew Wilson. It's gonna be available here in the coming weeks. 65 page, punchy, funny little book. You can read it in like an hour. It's called Unbreakable, not like Kimmy Schmidt, but like, <laughs> but like Unbreakable, what the Son of God has to say about the Word of God. So good, so good uh, and super exciting. Andrew Wilson is gonna be on the Park Hill podcast having a conversation about readings and misreadings of the Bible. It should be really helpful. It's gonna be a conversation for him. Um, Andrew says this in the book, love this. He says, our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ. I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him and I've decided to follow him. So if he talks and acts like the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, I will too. Even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. So good. That's the whole point today. We trust the scriptures because we trust in Jesus. So how should we think about the Bible? Well, we should think that the authority of Jesus is exercised somehow through the Bible, all of it. That the authority of Jesus, the Jesus who said, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. That Jesus, he's our teacher. He teaches us this stuff. And what he's done is he's exercised and mediated his authority in the church somehow through the Bible. And we shouldn't have a problem with that. Authority is mediated all the time through writing in our culture. I mean, this is the way it's been for centuries. You get an email from your boss, you have a choice to obey or not to obey it. Why? Because their authority is being mediated through their writing to you. Okay, now the hard part, and I admit this is the hard part, that most of the Bible is not as straightforward as some of the emails we get. Most of the Bible is, is narrative, like, how, like a story. Like I read a story and I'm like, okay, how do I do the story? Like how is the story authoritative over today for me? Great question. Here's another question. Is the narrative of the Old Testament as authoritative today after Jesus as it was for the Jewish people before Jesus? That's a very important question too. That's a question the early church wrestled with. It's a question, as we read the New Testament, you're gonna see tons of wrestling with that question um, in the rest of 2018, which brings us back to the start. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus declares, do not think I've come to destroy the scriptures, to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, you guys, all of them. Jesus says this another way in John's gospel, and this is chilling. 
speaking to the Pharisees. He says, you study the scriptures diligently. That's noble, studying the scriptures diligently. That's what we pray for. Park Hill leadership, we're committed to studying the scriptures diligently. That's our prayer for us, for you. But, but look how they did it. Because you think that in the scriptures you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You guys, all of this, see it? I don't know if you can see it from the back. All of this, this whole library of ancient documents, all of it points toward Jesus so that we would have life in Jesus. All of Jesus' life and his death for your sin and his resurrection to conquer death forever and his kingdom coming into the world, all of, all of this points forward to that. And, and the way I see it as leader of Park Hill, as one called by God with his wife to uh, initiate the planting of this community, I wanna, I wanna call, I, I see two errors that we can make. And these, these are encouraging things to consider. There's two errors we can make as a church when it comes to the Bible. I wanna avoid these errors together if we can. Number one, we can read this library of writings and week after week, we can become conceited with our knowledge and puffed up with pride to the point we become cold-hearted Bible nerds. God forbid we become those. The Pharisees are what they're called in the New Testament. That's who Jesus is talking about here. This book will not bring you eternal life. You cannot earn points with God by reading this book. Life is only found in Jesus. He's the center of this book. He is why this book exists. He is what this book is all about. And the apostle Paul wrote, some of the things that were written in the Old Testament is a shadow of the reality that is Christ. Jesus is what we're supposed to see in the scriptures. So listen, Error one would be to refuse to come to Jesus for life. Don't refuse to come to Jesus for life this year. And may this year teach us to open our minds and hearts to Jesus every single day. And number two, finally, the other error we can make, and maybe you're here, maybe this resonates. It does sometimes with me. Because of some apparent problem you had with the Bible or with the church and the Bible, you've stopped reading it. You've stopped engaging with the scriptures, you could be missing out on a relationship with God. Jesus thought the scriptures were enough. It was the very thing that satisfied him when his stomach was empty and his flesh was weak. Through the scriptures, Jesus heard God speaking to him. Through the scriptures, God was mediating his authority and his life to him. This is the life we're called to. Life in Jesus. And I would hate for you to miss out on a relationship with God because of some apparent problem or because of some sermon you heard five years ago about the Bible. You see, I don't, I don't think the Bible says, look at me as much as it says, look through me to see Jesus. This is our prayer this year. And this is our prayer as we come to the table. We see Jesus there to touch and taste and sense the presence of Jesus through the physical act, the family meal of the king and eat and drink together as his kids. Let's come to him because he has given us this call. Let's respond by eating and drinking together. Heavenly Father, we now come to you because you've called us. 
and we wanna answer. Have your way. For the next 20 minutes, do what you wanna do with your precious church.